From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. You know how it is. Every question that you feel like you have some kind of a foothold on, it just opens up a thousand more questions. So it is an ongoing journey. But once I answered that question in the affirmative, do I believe that? Is that something that I believe? Is that the answer to fundamental truths that that I've been wrestling with my whole life? And the answer was yes. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome to the program Corey Nathan. Corey Nathan started out as a stockbroker by day while studying at a theater conservatory by night. Since then, he's been an entrepreneur with one foot in business and one foot in creative pursuits. He's built such endeavors as a niche executive search firm, a theater and a film ensemble, a residential and commercial service company, a 501c3 nonprofit to help folks during the pandemic, and most recently, a new media and content company. Much of Corey's current work is focused on collaborating with people across religious, political, and social divides to help understand and repair some of our culture's rancor. This springs from his personal background. Corey Nathan was raised in an observant Jewish household before becoming a born-again Christian in his late 20s. This unique trajectory required engaging in fraught conversations about religion with his family, as well as strained discussions in the church about politics. Over the last several years, a growing audience has been enjoying the engaging, provocative, and fun conversations about these subjects on Corey Nathan's podcast, Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing each other. We're delighted to have you join us today, Corey Nathan. Welcome to Things Not Seen. David, it's great to be with you again. We're, I feel like we're old pals reuniting, so this is a special treat. There's so much that I want to ask you about, but I think for my listeners, the place to start is with you yourself. And if you could tell us a little bit about how you were raised, the household that you were raised in, what was your background like? And I'd love it if you don't talk us through the entire thing, but take us step by step. Tell us about your childhood, Corey Nathan. You know, it's interesting timing of that question. Yesterday, we had a belated Hanukkah family gathering. And for my Hanukkah present, my father gave me the album that I put together for my bar mitzvah. And it had me reflecting back on just exactly what you're asking, how we were raised, observant Jewish family. We kept kosher, although we kept kosher in the way that many American observant Jews keep kosher. We had our gray lines that we crossed. (laughs) We went to an Orthodox synagogue. I went to public school, but I went to Hebrew school from the time that I was actually in kindergarten. I was going to a JCC, a Jewish community center. Went there for nursery school. By first grade, I was going to public school, but I went to Hebrew school twice a week. We went to Friday night services, Saturday morning Shabbos services. We were very engaged in our shul. And this continued beyond my bar mitzvah. So I went to Hebrew high school. 
And for me, I was very connected, not only from a religious aspect, but from a family. I felt the heritage, the invitation to my bar mitzvah said, as my father and grandfather before me, and I felt that I was a continuation of a story a continuation of a family, continuation of a people. When we read from the Seder on Passover, it's written in the we, uh, the first person plural. And I still feel that. Let's stay with that for just a moment before before we go into the sort of transition to Christianity. I'd love to know, so you're talking about your experience of Judaism as not simply an individual experience, but rather you felt as if you were part of a community, part of a lineage, part of a heritage. I want to make sure that I've heard that correctly. Yeah, yeah. And it does go back thousands of years if we're doing the ritual of retelling the Exodus story at Passover through the Seder with the order of the dinner, or if I'm simply going to my grandparents' house at the age of 17, spending the afternoon with Baba and Zayd with Yiddish for grandmother, grandfather, and hearing the story of how we came from Russia. It was called Russia. It was part of the, it was actually Ukraine, but it was part of the Tsar's Russia, how we came from Russia and what that trip was like across Europe and the, the boat, the how my Baba's little baby brother died on Ellis Island, how this is this happened to us. You know, this is our family, how uh, my uncle Saul and Srulik were Zionists they, before there was a, a state of Israel, right? You know, how one of the uncles was recruited into the, the Tsar's army in World War One. One was not, I wouldn't say toying around with the possibility of being a Bolshevik, but eventually castigated by what emerged as the Bolshevik revolution. So this all happened to us. And it's something that as one begins to form a sense of identity, it's in, you could feel it in one's bones. Our mutual friend, Lisa Sharon Harper, her 2021 book or 22 book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Fa- broke my Family and the World and How to Repair It All. She goes back nine or 10 generations of her own family. And it's something that really resonated with me. And I appreciated the way that she shared history, but through the very personal reflections of her own family going back through the generations. So I can very much relate to that as we've done history work on our own family. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to be speaking with Corey Nathan. He is a person with a very complex background, and we're going to be getting into that in our conversation. But he is probably best known right now as the host of the podcast, Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. So I'm really grateful for your talking about the multi-generational connection that you felt to Judaism. But you also mentioned something a moment ago in talking about it. You said your family kept kosher, but like many American Jewish families, you had certain gray lines. I wonder if you could expand on that. What does that mean? Well, we had to adapt to our surroundings. And we ultimately made choices of what worked for us, which lines we weren't willing to cross. So we kept just kosher enough. You know, uh, Chabadniks, uh, uh, Orthodox communities have an expression, you're not kosher yet, (laughs) but we were going in the other direction. So we would eat pizza, pork, sausage, what have you, these things that are unkosher, shellfish, but we would only eat it outside of the house. (laughs) So we were keeping kosher enough. My father's actually going the other way where he is going to Chabad and he's becoming, he's increasing the observance 
with which he abides by certain mitzvot. So it, every individual has to decide for themselves the degree to which they're going to comply with the 613 mitzvot of Torah. So our family had our um, negotiations and decided, okay, this is what we're going to do, two separate sets of dishes and silverware, but we're not going to go... Let's not go crazy, as my mother used to say. <laughs> what I'm really grateful for at this point in our conversation is you're introducing the idea that Judaism is not a monolithic religious observance, but rather it is, in many ways, as you've described it, a kind of negotiation. And that's true both for the sort of most reform Jewish community up through the ultra-Orthodox communities, there is a, a sort of centrality of dialogue, of having to work things out in real time, of not necessarily just having hard and fast rules, but having those rules be interpreted in a way that people can actually live. Now, I'm an outsider to this. You've lived this. As I say this to you, does that sound right, or would you correct my characterization of what I've heard you say? Yeah, if anything, you've understated it. The joke is two Jews, three opinions. <laughs> so another way to think of it is when I first read the New Testament, in particular in Matthew 23, what looked like a, a scathing argument that Jesus was having with some Pharisees, I just saw it as Tuesday. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just saw it as, well, they're just having a conversation. Why is everybody yelling at each other? We're not yelling at each other. We're just having a conversation. So this is something, it is very much in the tradition of my family, of Jewish history. We're working things out and we feel very passionately about them. And the connection between our intellectual pursuits and our emotions and our loins, everything is very connected. That's why it, at times it may seem very animated, but even within one's own mind, to hear, you'll often hear a Jewish thinker say, on the one hand, you know, and then explain something, but on the other hand, you know, so that's part of the nuance of it all that I really, I've come to embrace. And I'm sure that we'll get into this because it seems to me that throughout your career, you are attempting to maintain that state of nuance, that openness to conversation, that openness to on the one hand, but on the other hand. And what I really appreciate in this part of our conversation is you're helping to set the stage for some questions that are going to come later in the hour. So my listeners will really be understanding the deep foundation of your craft and your calling towards a kind of supportive democratic practices that really can be found in this childhood that is reared in this kind of negotiating of the various commandments of Judaism. Now, you mentioned a moment ago that when you read Matthew 23, you you encountered that as just like a Tuesday. This was just people just doing what people in your community were doing all the time. And I'm wondering if you can because we're about to move to a break, so we can't get fully into this. We'll get into this in the next segment, but begin to build that bridge for us. Where in your journey did it start to shift for you that your community in Judaism was opening towards a community that connected in some way with Christianity? Help to begin that part of the story for us. I had done a lot of reading in the summer of 2000, like obsessive amounts of reading, and some of it was a presentation of empirical evidence, like the work that Josh McDowell did. But that was from more of an argumentative apologetics approach. But then I started reading C.S. Lewis and I started reading John Howard Yoder and N.T. Wright. And I was really pulled in 
by their thinking. And we may discuss this in more detail in a minute. But what ultimately got me was Jesus. And I don't say that dismissively or simplistically. What I mean is when I got to Matthew 5, I read what I recognized as a Devar Torah, like an explanation of Torah of the first, a Parsha that they were discussing from the first five books of the collection we think of as the Bible. And it was the most brilliant Devar Torah I'd ever read or heard. What I didn't know, because I wasn't familiar with the literary structure or the tradition of New Testament, I didn't realize I was reading the New Testament or the, the Sermon on the Mount. So, uh, yeah, pretty good sermon, right? <laughs> so, but to, to me, it really resonated. I thought that as a rabbi, as a teacher, as a, a prophet, this Yeshua ben Yosef just resonated so profoundly. And some of the questions I was grappling with, existential questions, philosophical, theological questions, there was a coherence and a consistency in what this rabbi was teaching that I had never encountered before. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to be speaking with Corey Nathan. He is an entrepreneur who has worked in the business world, the finance world, the world of entertainment and media, and helping to build and service nonprofits to help others. He is probably best known as the host of the podcast, Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Please stay with us. Our conversation will be continuing in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find more than 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Corey Nathan. He started out as a stockbroker by day while studying at a theater conservatory at night. Since then, he has become an entrepreneur with a foot in the business world, a foot in the service world, and a foot in the media and arts world. He is probably best known as the host of the podcast, Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Well, in our first segment, you were telling us a little bit about your background growing up in an observant Jewish household, but a negotiated observance where you were balancing the rules and figuring out how to live a life in the midst of those rules. And at a couple points towards the end of that segment, we began to gesture towards your journey towards Christianity. And you mentioned at one point when you were reading Matthew 23, and then you said how struck you were by the deftness of the the kind of rabbinic interpretation in Matthew 5, I think what my listeners want to know right now is, what the heck got you started reading the New Testament in the first place? That's a great question. It's It was a, some guy. <laughs> I, I was doing business with a fellow that I really respected, a guy named Hal. 
And he, I looked to Hal because he had this, he seemed like he was a great husband, a great dad, successful business person, a great contributor in his community. And I want, I was in my late twenties, I was looking for mentorship. I wanted someone to take me under their wing to learn about the things that were important to me. So one of the things that Hal did was he would give me books to read. If there was a particular question I had on finances or leadership or any number of being a good dad, he gave me a book. And oftentimes the book was what I considered to be a Jesus book, (laughs) meaning it had New Testament scripture in it. And Hal, like me, had grown up Jewish, but he became a Christian. So I frankly objected to it. I I didn't want to be evangelized to. I didn't want to be proselytized to. And of all people that should have been able to understand this, Hal should have understood it. That, look, man, God bless you, you and your whole Jesus thing, but don't like, don't leak your Jesus stuff on me. (laughs) Now, I I want to make sure that I'm understanding the kind of books that he was handing to you. So, and my listeners may not be familiar with this type of literature. So there is in the business world, a group of self-help authors that come out of a kind of evangelical tradition that weave biblical themes, Christian biblical themes and Christian stories through. So things like the richest man in Babylon or the greatest salesman in the world or... Ogmandino. So when I say those kind of titles, are those the kind of things that were being handed to you, or were they more explicitly evangelical than that? Well, eventually it was more explicit. It was a lot of Augmentito. It was building the leader within you, building the leaders around you. I forgot the author's name, but he has a whole series of books. So it was books like that. But then when I took Hal to task, he gave me another book, <laughs> and it was much more explicitly evangelical. But he went about, and the book was another McDowell one. It was the a short version of Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I think it's called a case, not a case for Christ. That's Strobel. It was, I forgot the name of the book, but it was like 180 pages. It was the first, it was the first book that I had read that tried to make an empirical case for the life, death, and resurrection of the historical character Jesus. And frankly, I read through the book pretty quickly and I got to the end of it And candidly, I was not convinced, (laughs) but I was pissed. (laughs) And I was, I was aggravated enough to pursue it further. That's when I came across evidence in advance of verdict. That's when I came across some of Strobel's work. And I still, I didn't appreciate that approach necessarily, but I did appreciate the fact that somebody was trying to set up evidentiary, an evidentiary case for the, not just the existence of Jesus, but of his life, of his work, and even the miraculous, the supernatural elements of the gospel accounts. So I needed to reckon with, I'm taking this a little bit further than what you asked, but I needed to reckon with certain philosophical questions, fundamental questions, like, do I be, can I believe in the supernatural? But really what I was asking was, do I believe in a closed universe, a closed system outside of which nothing can happen that isn't in the natural order, the mathematical, you know, order of things? And ultimately I did. The answer I came to was that I did through grappling with how other thinkers have wrestled through these types of questions. I I didn't come to the conclusion that uh, miracles the kind of miracles where God just spoke to me and he told me to go to Kmart aisle 12 and you'll find a million dollars. That's not the kind of thing I'm talking about. But for 
the rare exceptions of defeating death by going through death itself and coming out the other side as a, a, an actual physical living person, uh, God, God in this instance, but person, that's something that made sense to me, that, um, that, that it tracked, if you will. So the idea of an open universe within which a creator, God, a designer, a sovereign being can act within, that, that's something I decided I believed. There were still a lot of questions. There, there was a gaping, an ocean of questions that I still needed to wrestle through. And you know how it is. Every question that you feel like you have some kind of a foothold on, it just opens up a thousand more questions. So it is an ongoing journey. But once I answered that question in the affirmative, I had to ask, does this person who the theology is saying is part of the Trinity, the God, do I believe that? Is that something that I believe? Is that the answer to fundamental truths that, that I've been wrestling with my whole life? And the answer was yes. I still don't have the right articulate. I'm not as articulate as some, but it's something that it, it just hit me like a ton of bricks after I, I read through the New Testament. So going back to your original question, how did I get to the point where I was even reading New Testament? Honestly, like there, there was this part of my brain that I thought as soon as I opened up that book, the God of Israel would just strike me down. <laughs> no, Corey, you can't do this. All of your, your Jewish ancestors, they're, no, they're, you know. So that's what I imagined. But I opened the book. And the funny thing is, the first book that I opened up to was James. And the greeting at the beginning of James is, was like my Jewish ancestors saying, Hey, buddy, how you doing? <laughs> nice to see you. It's the, to the 12 tribes. And that book in particular deals head on with some of the problems that I was trying to work out, faith versus works and that sort of thing. And that's, so reading James in whatever it took, 10 minutes to read, that was my invitation to go to Matthew 1 and just read straight through. And what was really profound is I was like tenderized meat <laughs> through, through the process of reading it the first time through. By the time I get to Revelation 21 and 22, what I recognized was the Genesis 1 and 2 story. It, came, it had come full circle in a way that, that was so profound to me that, that God, a creator God, is still working actively in God's creation, right? And it's a story that's still being told, and we're in it. We're in that story. So that told me that we're working towards something. Anyway, I'm getting, uh, I'm starting to preach a little bit here, but that's, I'm just trying to share what my experience was, how I got to open up the Bible, what, or the New Testament part, how it impacted me that first read through. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to be speaking with Corey Nathan. He started out his work life as a stockbroker, but he has had feet in several different types of business. He's an entrepreneur who has worked in the financial field. He has worked in the business world. He has worked in the world of arts and media, and he has worked in the world of service nonprofits. He's probably best known right now to us as a podcast host. He's the host of the program Talking Politics and Religion religion without killing each other. Well, one of the things that is 
I'm hearing very clearly in your telling of this story is that you did not experience a kind of breakdown or deficiency in Judaism. Instead, what I'd like to characterize this as is you moved from abundance to abundance. You moved from an abundant and rich life with your family in Judaism, and then you began to explore these kind of cosmological questions. Is the universe closed or is it open to the miraculous? It was one thing that I heard you say. And as you began to explore that, you found a different and perhaps deeper abundance than what you had encountered in the religion of your childhood. When I characterize it that way? Do I have it basically right? Or was there a kind of crisis moment that kind of thrust you from one to the other? No. Yeah, the former, I think, is a closer description. And when I started reading N.T. Wright's work and filling in, coloring in the first century, what we think of as Israel, that, that region, I could very much relate to the immediate disciples of Yeshua, of Jesus. Because they're Jews, they're Jewish people coming from a long tradition who have certain observances and go, in that case, the second temple was still there and they would go to the temple certain times a year and they would eat certain foods and, and, and gather together on certain days. I could very much relate to that, but I could also relate to, uh, say, Peter, who comes across this teacher, this rabbi, who is intimating, hinting at even possibly being Mashiach. I could relate to that, that Peter would have to go home and tell his family, I think I found the tzaddik of our generation. I think I found maybe Mashiach. Like, how did those conversations go? There could be many sitcoms written about Peter going back and I don't, I can't believe what I'm about to tell you, but, and that was very much what it was like for me when I went back to New Jersey. It was Thanksgiving of 2000. I flew back, took a, an all, a red eye from LA to New York and sat on the front porch in my parents' house and explained to my father that I, I became a Christian. <laughs> and how was that received? Was that received with hostility? Was it received with gentility? What was the initial reception, and how did that conversation go? Oh, it was great. He mazel tov, now let's have a sandwich. No, it wasn't anything like that. The first conversation was with my dad. It was like a two-hour conversation. My dad has a graduate degrees in psychology and education, and he approached that initial conversation in a very analytical way. He was very skeptical, so he asked pointed questions, uh, but it was a pretty. Res he was he did his best to stay pretty reserved during that conversation. His his real reaction, I'll call it, came about a month later when I got a 10-page, single-spaced letter describing all of the reasons why I can't, I shouldn't, I mustn't become a Christian. And he approached it from every angle you could imagine, emotional, political, philosophical, theological, filial obligation, all these different things. And that letter served as a, a launching pad for a conversation that we're still having to this day. I started responding paragraph, paragraph by paragraph, and then he would reply to my response, and I would reply to that. And so in many ways, we're still having a conversation. But at the end of the talk on the front porch, Ron, my father, Ronnie, says, well, now you got to go tell your mother. <laughs> so, so this is the part that maybe can be in the sitcom. I went in, and I don't have the same relationship with my mother as I do with my father. So I just cut right to the chase. I said, Mom, I don't know how to tell you this any other way, so I'm just going to come out with it. I became a Christian. And she was working on her computer 
And her, I, it was as if her fingers floated off of the keyboard and she just started drifting into the other room. And I followed her. I said, mom, I don't know if you heard me. I became a Christian. And she was like fanning herself. And she said, I'm sorry. I just never thought I'd have a son who was, and she couldn't find the word, she, who was walking with Jesus. <laughs> so that was Phyllis's reaction. <laughs> and we didn't really talk much else about it. But like I said, my father and I, to this day, we still have these conversations. And my father ultimately, he has such a nuanced view of the historical character of Jesus. He sees, he's, we, we would trade books. He would share a book like, you take Jesus, I'll take God, on like certain rabbinic treatises or responses to the, to the possible divinity of Jesus. And I would send him a book from N.T. Wright or C.S. Lewis or G.K. Chesterton or one of these great writers that I was working through. And he had, he, he really enjoyed the Tom Wright stuff. So he eventually came to the conclusion that Jesus was arguably the tzaddik, the great rabbi of his generation, that he could have and should have been a prophet in the tradition of Jeremiah and Malachi and all, all the great Jewish prophets. But he resents, uh, he resents that Jesus was stolen from the Jews in a way. And that's a whole other conversation. But when it comes to Messiah, he says, well, he was a candidate. He was a Mashiach candidate. And he says, obviously, I think he's a failed candidate, but he's took it a step further because he continued to think it through. He said, the failure was not Jesus's failure. The failure was the failure of his generation. So he's, he, in a lot of ways, my father's thought more about the messiahship of Jesus than a lot of Christians I know. So I really appreciate that and respect that. What strikes me about the way that you're characterizing this, earlier in our conversation, you talked about your experience of Judaism as a kind of ongoing negotiation, trying to find out a right level for living. And when you presented this to your family, particularly with your father, it sounds as if you two began to engage in an ongoing negotiation about how you would understand this new way that you were living. Now, when I make that connection, when I make that characterization, does that sit right with you or would you describe it in a different way? The only correction I would make or the only way that I would describe it a little bit differently is those first three or four years, it was heated. It was heated to the extent that it would make Matthew 23 look like light comedy because it wasn't just a religious choice. It was generational. And the decision that I was making, there's a certain resonance that a Jewish people can't shake. And that is Throughout history, we've suffered at the ends of spears and guns that are being held by men wearing crosses on their helmets and their chests. And that's my family too, whether it was the Krivals and the Blick of Ukraine, who my grandmother was born there. And she said, it's funny. It wasn't funny at all. It was tragic. She said, it's funny. The Bolsheviks were fighting the Tsarists and the Tsarists were fighting the, the uh, Cossacks and the Cossacks were fighting everybody else, but they could all agree at least on one thing. They all hated the Jews. <laughs> so, and then the other side of the family, there were some who were a little further north in Poland and Romania and Germany. 
the Mertics and the Kleinfelds and even some of the Nathans that were still left there, but it's a, it was a different family name. And you could imagine a lot of that part of the family that didn't make it out were eviscerated in World War II. So this resonates when a son comes to his father and says, I'm becoming a Christian. You can't help have those images, those historic atrocities reverberate in a very painful way. That's what's at stake. So, and it's worth grappling through. Why is that? Why were certain hordes of people and armies of people able to hijack these symbols, the cross, the name of Jesus, certain shards of scripture for the most atrocious acts to originate racism, even going back centuries? So these are, you can understand why we're still having this conversation. The scars run deep. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Corey Nathan. He's an entrepreneur who started out as a stockbroker while studying at a theater conservatory by night. Since then, he's been an entrepreneur with one foot in the business world and one foot in creative pursuits, having built such endeavors as a niche executive search firm, a theater and film ensemble, a residential and commercial service company, and a 501c3 nonprofit to help folks during the pandemic. He's also the host of the podcast, Talking Religion and Politics, without killing each other. Our conversation is going to continue in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find more than 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Corey Nathan. He started out as a stockbroker by day while studying at a theater conservatory at night. Since then, he's been an entrepreneur with one foot in the business world and one foot in creative pursuits, having built such endeavors as a niche executive search firm, a theater and film ensemble, a residential and commercial service company, and a 501c3 nonprofit to help folks during the pandemic. Most recently, he started a new media and content company, and if you you have heard his voice, you probably have heard it as the host of the podcast, Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. I want to take what we've been saying in the earlier part of the conversation and begin to shift it towards your podcast. And one of the ways I want to do that is with this question, because as you've described the people that you were reading, particularly Josh McDowell, one of the things that rings out when I think about Josh McDowell is McDowell's many talks where he talks about the virtues of intolerance and a kind of culture warrior sensibility. Everything that I know about your work, particularly your podcast, talk in politics and religion without killing each other seems to me to be the opposite of what Josh McDowell and others like him were saying in the world. So help me briefly to understand how you made it from reading those kind of books to your present position. My hunch is it comes out of that kind of negotiation that we've been talking about and that willingness to go deep in conversation. But maybe there are some other aspects of this that I don't know about that you can tell us about. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair assessment. I find I quickly came to the conclusion that Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel's approach, not to group them in together, but they have a lot of similarities in their attempt at apologetics. But I found them disingenuous in some ways that they started with an a priori position. 
I, I don't necessarily buy the idea that he came the way that, that Josh McDowell came to Christ, the way C.S. Lewis describes it. He came to Christ kicking and screaming. I don't, for some reason, I just, I don't buy it. I think that a lot of his work, he starts with a conclusion that he already has arrived at and then backs evidence that he wants to make his case. Strobel does very much the same thing. And that to me seems very transactional. It doesn't seem sufficient. It doesn't seem to allow for the deep roots of relationship and community that would reflect the coming attractions of the the new heaven and new earth that Jesus talks about. So, but it's okay. It's okay because I wanted to hear what he had to say. And it was a door opener for me where my friend gave me this book and Josh McDowell rhetorically was trying to make a point. And I said, huh, that's an interesting point. I reject it entirely, but let me see where it takes me. <laughs> so yeah, you're absolutely right. And I find that the colonization, if you will, of a lot of lines of thought, a lot of schools of study, whether it's apologetics or whether it's quote unquote science or whether it's any number of other academic pursuits, find it as somewhat benign, but very much in a tradition of Christendom. And that's why I have been bumping up ever since I became a Christian, bumping up against these tendencies that are almost more prominent in us than the theological convictions that brought me to Christ in the first place. I want to make sure I'm understanding when you say Christendom, you're talking about a kind of empire Christianity or a Christianity wedded with violence or maybe even the near edge of what we might call Christian nationalism. Am I hearing that right in what you're saying or would you characterize it in a different way? No, you're absolutely on the right track. And we see it in different disguises and different dances and different language, but it seems to crop up again and again that guys who want to make history work out the way they want it to work out, to put on certain costumes, if you will, put on and adapt certain language and words and weaponry in order to elevate their own cause, which is a cause of domination, a cause of enrichment, a cause of power. And frankly, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's the opposite of Jesus's path to victory. Quite simply, Jesus's path to victory was through the cross. So as you can imagine, I've been kicked out of a Bible study or two. <laughs> <laughs> well, now might be a great time to introduce and talk a little bit about your podcast, Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. What was the genesis of the show? What is the ethos of the show? What got you into that? What was the need that you felt like you were fulfilling when you started this program? So very early on, when I became a Christian, like I said, I had been I, I realized that a lot of guys I was going to church with, that people that I was in Bible study with or our Sunday school class with, that those convictions that brought me to this incredible evolution in my own spiritual life, that what they prioritized was something altogether different. And I'll tell a really quick story. It must have been 2004. So I was still, I still considered myself a baby Christian at the time. And in our church parking lot, I went to this big old Grace Baptist church, this big old, it was, it's the biggest church in our valley. And we would have maybe 3000 people total over the course of the weekend show up. And I had been developing a nice rapport with the main pastor there, Pastor Tom Givens, who subsequently passed away. But I saw a bumper sticker with Carrie Edwards on it. 
It was the 04 election year. And I went to Pastor Tom after the sermon. I said, hey, Pastor Tom, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, there's a there's a Carrie Edwards bumper sticker, you know, in the parking, on a car in the parking lot. And he said, Corey, you're joking around with me. And you think it's lighthearted to point that out. But I got to tell you, I've received literally dozens of emails saying, Pastor Tom, what are we going to do about this? As if somebody having a Carrie Edwards bumper sticker on their car was something that the church had to do something about. And that just struck me as as comical, ridiculous, but dangerous in a way. And then I started to see the next presidential election cycle, some of the same things. Sarah Palin, it was an interesting idea. And then she opened her mouth. And if anybody's a Sarah Palin fan, I, I, I don't mean to be offensive in the way I'm characterizing her, but the way that folks embraced her as just short of the next coming of the Messiah. And then it was a coming attraction for what we saw, obviously, in 2016. And I just saw a lot of these tendencies in the church where... Whether it was an issue like immigration, we were looking at Le- the top of Leviticus 19, and somebody was using literally half of a verse at the top of the chapter, and I and to make the case for building a wall, closed borders, and I said, guys, all we have to do is read the rest of the chapter. Don't trust me. Do we believe in Scripture? Or do we not believe in Scripture? Let's really wrestle with it. Do we want to derive our conclusion, our, our nuanced political positions from the word that we say is supposed to be authoritative? Or do we want to start with these, these positions, like the word I used before, a priori. We already arrived at the position that we prefer, our prejudices, if you will, and then take little bits and pieces and back it in. I want to make sure my listeners understand Leviticus 19 is a chapter that includes, among other things, the portion that says when you're harvesting your field, you don't harvest all the way to the edge of the field because there will be strangers walking by the field and they need to eat. And that, what's called the gleanings there at the edge, that's for them. And that's literally talking about caring for the immigrants among you and the strangers among you, not building a wall against them. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, you're remembering it great. And it's not just one reference. Leviticus 19 is a great chapter where it goes a little bit deeper into that, but it's a theme that's repeated throughout Leviticus. And that's just one issue. But also when it came to Donald Trump, he when he descended that golden escalator, literally every day, I thought he is, uh, we could open up every page of our Bible and it testifies against the words, actions, and character of Donald Trump. Wherever we look at fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. He's the opposite of that. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. He's on the exactly wrong side of that equation. These six things know these seven. Look them up. And it's really interesting how he's, you can draw a picture next to these six, know these seven things the Lord hates. And yet so many of my friends from church were embracing this, this individual. So I felt the need to engage in conversations, but then in engaging conversations, I joked around before about being kicked out of Bible studies because a lot of the things that I was, sometimes it was simply a question and the question wasn't okay to ask in the company that I was in. Sometimes it was a heated conversation that we'd get into. And frankly, I realized more than anything, I didn't want to argue for an issue. I didn't need to argue for a policy. I didn't need to argue on an individual politician's campaign. What I needed to do better is figure out how to have these conversations in a healthier, more edifying way. And that's the exercise 
that kind of lined up with learning this medium, falling at, being a theater and film guy. My producer hat was on the, from the very first podcast I listened to. So I was learning this medium, producing a couple other shows. And I said, man, this medium is tailor-made for the kinds of conversations that I'd want to have in order for me to be better able to learn how to have conversations with folks across our differences. The conversation I had with Lisa, our mutual friend, Lisa Sharon Harper, after October 7th was hard because we do have some differences. I have family in Israel, um, but it was one of the most profound moments of the year, if not the last five years, because Lisa loved me enough to simply sit with me and ask me questions and help me try to better understand what I was thinking, what I was feeling. And accept the fact that maybe we'll still arrive at different points of view on specific aspects of this conflict, this historic conflict that's blowing up in the most atrocious ways that we'll still have some differences, but that will, she'll still be my sister. I'll still be her brother. And she can still sit with me when I'm hurting and mourning. One of our family members tragically died on October 7th, that she can sit with me in mourning. We talked about it this morning, actually, and, and we called it the ministry of this sucks, brother. This just sucks. I want to, first of all, express my sympathies and condolences and on behalf of my listeners as well for the loss of your family member. But I also want to stay with this because what you're describing, I characterized you at the top of this segment as taking an opposite approach to Josh McDowell. And you characterized McDowell as starting with an end in mind and working a priori towards that end. What I really am hearing in what you're saying is you're experimenting in these conversations. You're not working towards a conclusion. You're building a future as you go, even to the extent, if I heard you correctly, that you got into the medium of podcasting, not even fully knowing how to do it, but feeling like there was a potential there. But what I really love about this is the openness, if I can use the word, the natality of this, not the mortality, you're not working towards a certain fixed end, but every moment sounds like a kind of birth and rebirth, or the possibility at least of that in this. Now, when I say that, it sounds highfalutin, but I want to make sure, I want to test with you, does that sound right? There's a hopefulness in what you're doing. Am I, he am I hearing that correctly? There is. And I, you had me at Heschel. I don't know if you realize, but you're resonating with every moment is another act of creation, as Heschel would say in Sabbath. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Somebody said the other day, well, Corey, you're the expert. And why don't you tell, and I said, hold on, I'm not the expert. Dude. I didn't start this podcast because I'm the expert. If anybody, somebody like Monty Guzma, Monica is from Braver Angels. She, maybe she's the expert because she really is like the patron saint of having these conversations in a healthier way. And her book last year, I never thought of it that way, is such a great book for how to approach these types of conversations across our differences. But I'm not the expert. I'm the worst student or the sickest patient in need of the most medicine. That's why I'm doing this thing. So every conversation that I do have, we talk about a lot of individual things. There's so, as there's so much work that goes into every interview slash conversation. But for the last couple of years, I've been asking what I call the TPNR question. How can we do this better? How can we talk about politics and religion without killing each other? How can we do it with people that think differently than we do, believe differently than we do, watch different news, get their news from different sources than we do? How can we talk politics and religion without killing each other? And everybody's been contributing so much. One of the most encouraging things is just the people who've shown up. You know, I'm not a politician. My background is not politics. My background is not seminary. My background is not as a, or a professional journalist. But the fact that somebody like David Brooks 
would come on my show is incredible. The fact somebody like Tim Alberta would make time for me. We just talked to Adam Kinzinger. Adam freaking Kinzinger came on the program. The fact that Lisa Sharon Harper, I read about Lisa Sharon Harper in a book and I had to, I felt compelled to reach out to her and she, she was kind enough to come on the program. Some of these folks, Pete Weiner and John Roush, like that they would make time for the likes of me. One of my favorite governors of New Jersey going back to the 90s, Christine Todd Whitman came on the program. Larry Wilmore. So we've had some entertainers. If you remember the Daily Show when John Stewart was hosting, Larry Wilmore, the senior black correspondent. But he's been, we had him on during the writer's strike. So there was something specific to talk about. But the idea that any of these folks would come on our show, because I'm not the only one who's grappling with this question. So that's what's been really encouraging. Well, and I want to linger with something because you you said we're going to talk across our differences in a healthier way. And so I want to ask you the Jesuit question. What does it feel like when you're talking in a healthier way? What does health feel like in these kinds of conversations? How do how would my listeners know when they've arrived at a healthy way to have these kind of conversations across differences? So I mentioned Monty Guzman in her book. I never thought of it that way. And if there's one thing, I would think it's a disposition of sorts, leaving open the possibility that you'll arrive at that moment, the I never thought of it that way moment, where I could be taught, like your listeners probably gathered, I am not the biggest Trump fan. (laughs) I'm not a MAGA red hat wearing the guy, but I do have some friends who just love this individual and are, have the bumper stickers and have the gun racks and, and I cherish still being able to have conversations with them. And what's helped me is leaving open that possibility of arriving at that moment where I say, huh, I never thought of it that way. Now, one of the tricks, if you will, it's not really a trick, it's just a, an approach that allows me to get there is by asking the right questions, catching myself when I'm doing it, w- when I'm falling into certain traps, like when I'm asking questions for interrogative purposes, as opposed to radically curious purposes. When I'm asking a question to try to trap someone in, a, in this imaginary contest where I'm going to somehow win a debate as if that's going to do anything, as opposed to asking the type of a question, not like, how could you possibly believe that? But tell me about your life, man. Oh, so it was your relationship with your dad that you going out and learning about guns and going hunting with your dad. That's why guns are such an important part of your life and have this symbolic meaning to you. Oh, that's interesting. Because now all of a sudden I'm learning about a human being. I'm learning about somebody's story and we're connecting as human beings as opposed to doing what Monty would call chaining. I think of it as dominoes. I learn one thing or I see one thing, whether it's a shade of somebody's skin or their red hat or any number of other things. I learn one data point and now all of a sudden I fill in all the rest of the narrative. And what that does is it mischaracterizes, oversimplifies and demonizes someone based on the one data point or two data points that I, I've arrived at. And now it's just a contest. At best, it's a transaction. Whereas our project, our job right now is not the transaction, not winning a debate because that's you're not really doing anything. Our project is more relational versus transactional. So when I ask the question of, tell me about your life, man, like, how did you arrive there? Why, why do you feel this way? And somebody tells the story of, it really pisses me off. He's a farmer and he says, it really pisses me off. We're having sandwiches and that's great. Love breaking bread with you, man. Do you know how 
that piece of bread got on your plate, the journey, it had to travel from my field to your plate. And he said, it pisses me off that people don't know that. So now I'm learning about a human being. And we're members, we're neighbors together. We're remembering each other. That's the power. That's the profundity of all that. Well, Corey Nathan, I'm so grateful to you for giving me a chance to get to know you as a human being. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I know that my listeners will as well. I'm grateful to you for the thoughtfulness that you have put into every step of your journey. It's just clear every single question that I've asked you, how deeply you've thought about this, how much you have reflected on this, how deep in conversation you have been. Thank you, first of all, for that investment in thoughtfulness, in being a careful thinker. But thank you especially for sharing that thoughtfulness today with me and my listeners. That's really encouraging, David. That's really meaningful. Thanks for sharing that. We've been speaking today with Corey Nathan. He started out as a stockbroker by day while studying at a theater conservatory at night. Since then, he's been an entrepreneur with one foot in the business world and one foot in creative pursuits. He's built such endeavors as a niche executive search firm, a theater and film ensemble, a residential and commercial service company, a 501c nonprofit that helped folks during the pandemic, and most recently, a new media and content company. He's the host of the podcast, Talking Politics and Religion, without killing each other. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.